0: Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com TechSF.
1: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host Matt Miller.
2: Every business day we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts along with essential market-moving news.
1: Find the Bloomberg Markets podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. One of the stories markets are dealing with today is some economic data coming out of China, a little bit disappointing. Consumer and producer prices fell together for the first time in 2020, a deflation, deflation cycle, you could call it. Tom Orlick, he knows a thing or two about China. He lived and worked in Beijing for many years. He is the chief economist for Bloomberg Economics. He joins us via Zoom. Hey, Tom, you know, When we all came into 2023, I think most companies, most countries around the world said, hey, one of the stories of 2023 is going to be China reopening, and that's going to be good for the global economy. That's not really playing out, is it? Tell us what's going on with China and its economy.
3: I think that's right, Paul. Uh, If we go back to the end of 2022, start of 2023, there was a lot of optimism. China exited its COVID lockdowns quicker than most people expected. And the rebound in the first quarter was stronger than most people expected. Um, What we're seeing, though, as we push into the second half of the year, is that rebound really didn't have legs. And very quickly, the story on China swung back to all of those significant structural problems. High debt, massive overcapacity in the real estate sector, growing tensions in relations with the United States, demographic drag. um, And these factors are dragging on growth. And they're also, as you know, dragging on prices. So in addition to all of those structural problems, China now battling with deflation as well.
4: Also, consumer spending not being quite as strong as Mm -hmm. economists were anticipating. Why is that?
3: So, I think when you think about the uh, household consumption story, um, there's a couple of significant challenges. Um, So, the first challenge is well, when the economy is not doing very well, then households don't have big earnings growth, they don't have confidence in their future earnings, and that weighs on their consumption. You've probably seen the 20% youth unemployment in China Mm -hmm. right now. If young people are worried about being unemployed, they're not going to be hitting the shops, they're not going to be spending on Taobao. Um, The second big problem is that China's households have a lot of their wealth tied up in real estate. Um, And when real estate prices were rising, as they did for much of the last 20 years, well, households felt richer, they wanted to go and spend some of that wealth. Um, Now, huge uncertainty about the real estate sector, Um, prices in some second tier cities already heading down, that's a blow to household wealth, means they're less likely to spend.
1: Hey Tom, some of these, uh headwinds you're highlighting here they seem pretty in long term entrenched not something easily fixed what in fact can the cover, can the government do and will the government do
3: so we've already seen the government starting to shift policy um we've seen a uh, mini rate cut by the PBOC. uh we've seen the PBOC, china central bank also encouraging the commercial banks to guide mortgage rates lower. That's meant to give a bit more juice to the real estate sector. Um, We've heard the government talk about the importance of boosting consumption. Um, So far, though, um, whilst there's been a sort of a steady drumbeat of pro-growth policy announcements, um, it's really not adding up to the size of stimulus, which I think markets are looking for, to turn the short-term narrative on China around.
4: China is the world's, as you know, second largest economy behind the United States. How much of an issue with this slowing growth could it have more globally when you have the U.S. seeing, obviously, when you think about these inflation numbers, we're getting another reading tomorrow with CPI, but improving?
3: Yeah, So um, if we come back to um, the beginning of the year, um, there was a fear that um, a surging Chinese recovery uh, will be great news for China. Um, but by juicing commodity prices, by pushing up prices for oil and soft commodities like soybeans, um, it could give extra legs to the global inflation story. um, And that potentially could keep the Fed and the ECB and the Bank of England hiking for longer than they would otherwise have had to do. Um, Well, here we are at the start of August and the Chinese economy is pretty clearly run out of steam um, and the stimulus so far has been not entirely missing in action, but still not adequate to the task. What that means is that impulse to global commodity prices, if anything, is in the other direction. Um, So China isn't making the Fed's job harder by adding to global inflation. If anything, it's making it a little bit easier by subtracting from global inflation.
4: Do you think that investors in the U.S. are too optimistic about a soft landing and maybe not thinking about some of the issues that are potentially going on in China and how that could obviously affect, like you were talking about, the Fed's interest rate path?
3: That's a really good question. I mean, I think there's just a lot of optimism um, about the the U.S. right now, Um, and um, clearly, a bunch of the recent data uh, sort of supports that soft landing narrative. Inflation's been coming down, labor markets have remained remarkably robust. Um, At the same time, if we think about some of the dynamics in the United States, if we think about what's happening with credit growth and banks' willingness to make loans, if we think about the amount of distress amongst household borrowers, um, there are some early indicators supporting um, continuing to support a hard landing narrative here Um, and then if we think more broadly if we think around the world well china's growth slowing is giving the fed a bit of an assist on controlling inflation um, but a slumping chinese economy is clearly not good news for global growth
1: hey tom over the, the last several years the chinese government really cracked down on um some of the tech companies the the leading technology companies in china that had listed their shares in the West, costing a lot of investors, including Western investors, a lot of money in losses. Is there any sense that that crackdown upon some of the big tech companies in China is contributing to maybe a softer-than-expected kind of reopening?
3: Yeah, so um, I think that the investors in the West didn't get the story on uh, China's tech crackdown quite right. Um, I think the view on Wall Street was this is Xi Jinping against the entrepreneurs. This is the Communist Party against the markets. Um, I think, in fact, what China was trying to do was wrestle with some of the big problems which governments in the US and Europe wrestle with as well. They were wrestling with the uh, problem of excess power um, for tech monopolies, wrestling with the problem of what to do in an information economy where big tech companies have so much access to data on everyone's lives. Um, They did that in a way which hammered the share price for these companies, um, but that wasn't the objective, right? They were trying to deal with these deeper social problems. Um, still, that added to the sense of malaise in China's economy, and it's also an area where China's policymakers have now pivoted, right? So we've seen Li Chang, China's premier, and other senior leaders out over the last few weeks saying, you know what, we get it. We understand that these big tech companies are drivers of growth, drivers of productivity, drivers of jobs, and whilst we don't want to let them run riot, we're not going to let them gouge the rest of the economy with their monopoly power, we do want them to succeed. Um, so that's part of the policy pivot. Let's see in the next few weeks if that starts to get, gain traction.
4: What are your forecasts for China's GDP growth for this year?
3: So it's funny, if you look at the forecast for growth this year, it's really remarkably, the headline number's remarkably robust, right? We still think that China's going to grow above 5% this year. And that's pretty much the consensus. Um, Unfortunately, the reason for that 5% growth is not because China's got robust momentum. It's just because 2022 was so disastrous, right? In 2022, we had Shanghai being locked down. We had other big parts of the country being locked down. COVID was still a really big drag on activity. When those controls were removed at the end of 2022, um, we had activity surging back. Yep what that means is we have the sort of artificial impression of very strong growth this year. In fact, it's just the base effect from those COVID lockdowns last year. The reality is much more sluggish.
1: Tom, thanks so much for giving us uh, some of your time. We really appreciate getting your perspective. We know you lived and worked in, Beijing for many years. You have a unique uh, person on the ground type of perspective. Tom Orlick, he's a chief economist uh, for Bloomberg Economics, uh, joining us via Zoom from Washington, D.C. Again, the weaker economy in China, probably not what the markets were anticipating coming, right. coming into the year.
4: And what that means potentially for the Fed. Do we yep. do think they are close to being done with their tightening campaign.
5: Yep.
6: You're listening to the team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
1: All right, one of the big news items uh, over the last 24 hours was in the gaming space and involving one of our uh, favorite companies, a Walt Disney Company, doing a deal um, with Penn Entertainment uh, and kind of getting into the sports betting business all in. It's amazing how that business has changed over the last three or four years. Let's round table with a couple of smart people that we happen to know, Geetha Ranganathan. She covers the media industry, including the Walt Disney Company for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, She joins us via Zoom. And Brian Egger, uh, he covers all the gaming stocks. He's been covering the gaming stocks for decades uh on wall street starting back in dlj maybe even somewhere before back in the day uh we'll get a sense of what it means for the gaming space he joins us here in our bloomberg interactive broker studio geetha let's start with you here is it surprising to you that disney mickey mouse wholesome (laughs) walt disney company is getting into the sports betting business
7: yeah, I mean this has kind of been this question always Paul, uh you know, obviously Bob Iger and and the Disney management team have always kind of wanted to keep that Squeaky clean, you know, family-friendly image, and didn't really want to get into sports betting directly. Um, and you know, Brian Eger has has told me so many times it's it's very difficult. You know, the, the the sports betting business, owning a sports book directly is is very difficult. It's fraught with a lot of operational, a lot of regulatory challenges. And so this kind of gives them nice exposure. So it kind of, uh, you know, they're they're getting that one and a half billion dollars in cash, the five hundred million in, in in stock options. Uh, So it gives them, you know, a good exposure without getting directly involved. And it kind of tells us that ESPN, the brand, definitely does have value. That is a question that some of the investors did have, and this kind of puts to rest uh, any of those fears.
4: Brian, I want to bring you into this conversation. When you're looking at this deal here, how does this translate into what you think shareholders will want to see from this moving forward?
8: So the pre-existing Barstool Sportsbook deal never really garnered more than a mid-single-digit share in the 16 states where uh, Barstool Sportsbook have been active. Uh, this has the potential to be a much larger generating um, deal. Now, of course, uh, it will involve uh, Penn putting up a billion, uh, basically a billion five to two billion dollars in commitments for marketing and other other things basically to get that and rebrand all those barstool sports books as espn much much more promising and they are thinking about long term ebitda potential annually of 500 million dollars to a billion dollars we're going to still take some time to work the numbers on that but that's really where the opportunity is because ESPN is is such a coveted brand Well, yeah. I should mention other media companies that have endeavored to team up with sportsbooks have had a tough time breaking breaking through and taking on the likes of DraftKings and FanDuel.
4: Why has that been such a challenge?
8: I think it's just a fairly competitive business with a lot of upfront customer acquisitions costs and the more native operators you know, you have DraftKings and Fandu, which had been daily fantasy sports operators. You have the likes of BetMGM and Caesars, which were closely affiliated with big name brand casino companies. So, for that reason, it's a pretty crowded landscape, and it has not been as easy as one might think for even a well-regarded media outfit to uh, to break into this space.
1: So, Keith, you highlighted an interesting point here that it just uh, getting this deal done with Penn kind of highlights there is still a lot of value associated with the ESPN brand. But the reality is it's not the profit engine that it used to be for the Walt Disney Company. Walt Disney reports uh, earnings after the close today. I think one of the many topics you and the analysts and investors will want to discuss with management is the future of ESPN. What, what's the current thinking here about the future of ESPN?
7: yeah that is uh you know obviously going to be front and center paul um so espn it's been it's been a real uh roller coaster here right so this used to bring in as you pointed out about 30 35 percent of the whole operating profits of Disney, uh, but for the past few years, they've kind of had this this double whammy, right? So they do generate about $13 billion in revenue, 13 to $14 billion in revenue, but cord cutting is kind of pressuring that top line. And then you have rising sports costs, so about nine, nine and a half billion dollars in sports wow. rights fees every year. So again, that's growing and that's pressuring the bottom line. So, so they're kind of uh, pressured on both sides there and the writing on the wall is clear and and bob Iger has acknowledged this many times he knows that he has to take espn over the top they have to go all in as far as streaming is concerned so it's not a question of when it's a que- it's not a question of if it's a question of when but again there are so many different things that need to be kind of ironed out because there's a new deal that's coming up with the nba there are existing tv deals in place um so again it's it's not going to be easy but We'll have to wait and see what, what Bob Iger says.
4: And speaking of how the NBA rights is the next big renewal that is going to happen, the current deal, like you were talking about, ESPN and Turner, does end after the 2024 and 2025 season. What do you think most likely would come out of that?
7: Yeah, so there's been, again, a lot of interest uh, from from many parties, not just the media uh, owners, not just Disney and Turner, NBC wants to get involved. And then of course you have the perennial question with the tech giants, will Amazon, Apple and Google make this big play? We know Amazon has not been shy about getting into the sports, uh, sports uh, arena. They already have Thursday night football. Again, Apple is dabbling a little bit with MLS. So it's gonna be interesting to see. And Google of course has that big YouTube Sunday ticket uh, deal. So they're they're all already made bets in the in the sports uh, rights field. So it's going to be interesting to see whether they want to do the same thing with NBA. Now, NBA is is a brand that travels globally. Uh, it, it also appeals to young males, which is a really a coveted audience when it comes to you know uh, advertising. Uh, so so that you know th- those deals negotiations are going to be really really interesting to watch.
1: Hey, Brian, this deal with uh, the Walt Disney Company to me highlights just the growth and the attractiveness of sports betting. Where are we in the evolution of sports betting? You said
8: 13 states have it? You know, it's more like 35 states with some form of it and, and over two dozen that have online sports betting, which is by far the biggest contributor. Uh, so it's it's rapidly growing since. Beginning. And
1: so what's the, how does it change the economics of Vegas, the sports books in Vegas. Some I like to just plop myself down in a sports book at Caesars, <laughs> sit there for a day and just watch sports. As What's we, going on there?
8: Yeah, I think the, the brick-and-mortar sports book, historically sports betting has only been about 2% of gaming revenue. That's very different than online, which is really not as big in Nevada. It's very big in states like New York and New Jersey. And that's really where you know we've seen this, this penetration opportunity is the online part of sports betting.
1: So it's it, And so the growth of that business – I mean, it's a long-term growth story, right?
8: It's longer term. I mean, if to get to the five hundred million to a billion dollar in long-term annualized EBITDA potential they see from this deal, it will take some time to get there. There'll be some upfront customer acquisition marketing costs, uh, a lot of money going through Disney uh, and through, through I should say, through uh, ESPN. But you know, there is enormous potential after getting through that additional upfront spend.
1: Hey, think we got about thirty seconds left. Will Bob Iger on the call tonight address succession plans?
7: I certainly hope he does. <laughs> and this has been such a perennial pain point for uh, for Disney. I mean, they do have another three and a half years with with Bob Iger, so I think there is some near term stability. But yeah, the, the it it still remains this biggest question mark for Disney.
1: Yeah, it's just uh, crazy. I you know he was doing so well with that succession planning for a while there, and then it all fell apart, and uh, nobody really knows why, other than. He likes a job and he doesn't want to give it up. Simple <laughs> as that. Um, so, if you're looking to be a successor, good luck. Keith Aranganathan uh, and uh, Brian Egger, they cover the media, they cover the gaming spaces, uh, respectively, for Bloomberg Intelligence, to the really the smartest voices out there on their respective industries. And if you want to get access to their uh, research, it's really simple. If you've got a Bloomberg terminal, B I go on the terminal, that'll take you to Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, we've got, we cover 1,200 companies, uh, 2,000 companies, you know, 120 uh, industries. Uh, 400 analysts across uh, the globe, and they've got it covered soup to nuts. So uh, Brian and uh, Geetha bringing us up to date on Disney and Penn Gaming. You're listening to The Tape.
6: Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play
1: Bloomberg 1130. Does one have the courage to be in this market? Phil Palumbo, founder, CEO, and CIO of Palumbo Wealth Management. So, Phil, after disastrous 2022, investors are doing a little bit better this year. Uh, a good first, you know, seven months plus. Now what do we do?
9: The bigger question for me is why didn't we get a recession yet, right? So we think about coming into 2023, it was recession fears. Now it's recession delayed. And again, why do we get why do we get a recession? So understanding that's going to be important. And from in my view, I look at it like there were three acts that happened. There was the American Rescue Act, there was the Infrastructure Act, and then there was the Inflation Act. All of that generated money into the economy for building infrastructure, etc., which really created this cushion within the economy because anybody who's been in business for a good amount of time knows that when you have leading indicators doing what they're doing, when you have inverted yield curve, And you have a Fed who has moved rates up as aggressively as he has, you always have a really bad recession. And we just haven't gotten that yet. So what investors have to understand is that you have to be cautious in the short term because of what I just said with the Fed and all those things that normally precede a recession. But with these other parts that I think a lot of prognosticators missed, which is this money that's been flooded into the economy. know deficits have gone up deficits up it's tough to really get a recession because the government's spending so you can't sit on your hands and just watch the market go up you have to be active Um, but these are really kind of the push and pull that's going on today
4: so if you look at the u.s stock market obviously as a forward-looking mechanism what is it telling us that investors are betting ahead for the economy
9: so investors are betting ahead two things right one is is AI. So, AI, like we talked about this before, is for real. It'll be productive for companies on the front end, which will expand margins, and that'll be great for EPS as we think about 24, 25, and 26. That's number one. Number two, markets are betting that inflation is going to come down. The Fed's going to be done with raising, re- raising rates, and because of that, interest rates will come down, and that'll be beneficial to stocks. So, that's what market participate- market participants are betting on.
1: So Phil we're looking at WTI crude oil up another 1% today $83.79 uh
9: Is there an energy play out there you like? I do. So so I like Occidental Petroleum. Uh, I like the energy sector just in general. I think the economy here, you know, does seem to be reaccelerating here a bit and you know with that commodities are are starting to improve. You can see it in the pricing from a technical standpoint. So Oxy is a company that throws off really strong free cash flow and as as the price of crude continues to rise, free cash flow becomes that much better for Oxy and many other energy companies as well. So that's a play that I like a lot.
7: What
4: about Nike?
9: Yeah, so Nike, as we all know, is a wonderful brand. It's trading below its intrinsic value by about 20, 25 percent. Recently, it's come down in value uh, from a pricing standpoint. I mean, the return on our investment capital on average has been 50% the past three years. That's continued to be projected to be at that level or even greater than that. Their EPS has doubled over the past 10 years. The story about Nike is not going away. I love their direct-to-consumer strategy, you know, eliminating the middleman. I think that's really going to work well and be profitable to the company. So I, we started buying into that about two or three days ago. We bought about a 70.75% position within clients' portfolios. No, we will add if there's a continued weakness in that particular area which may happen as a result of china weakness
4: and the latest results that we had from nike toward the end of june obviously seeing that sales strength but this is a very discretionary company if these are what consumers are going in and buying especially these niche types of brands does that really tell us that there's a recession on the horizon
9: yes yeah, i mean that's the thing so it it's kind of if you listen to target and you listen to tyson foods and what they're saying there is concern that the consumer is abating a bit but if you listen to what Amazon is talking about, you know, which is one of the strongest areas where you're seeing consumers buy, you know, their numbers are very strong. So it goes back to what I said before, you know, you, the jobs numbers are very strong. If you have a jobs numbers that continue to be strong, consumers are getting a paycheck. If consumers are getting the paychecks, then go out there and spend money. And, and that's what we're gonna continue to see going forward. A lot of Nike is around China. China's strength coming out of COVID hasn't been as great as many people anticipated. And a lot of Nike's EPS growth we're estimating will come out of China. So we need, really need to see a strong China for Nike to really work as we think about Nike over the next three to five years.
1: We're going to get some inflation data over the next couple of days. Where are you on your kind of your inflation watch here uh, for this economy?
9: It goes back to what you were asking before about the market overall. So the market overall is anticipating inflation to continue to decelerate and the Fed to pause and be done. I don't know if it's going to be that easy. I do believe inflation has come down quite precipitously from its peak, but I do think we may get sticky because of housing and wage pressures um, as we think about the CPI prints going forward as it relates to core. And if you take if you take a, if you take non-core regular CPI, which includes food and energy now with energy prices increasing, you may actually see that number disappoint. So. You know, if you, it's interesting if you look at the 10-year Treasury. It's holding that 4% number, I and mean, I mean, right now there's a huge short on the on the 30-year, based on various commentary that we've all probably know about and been reading about. So you see, you, everybody's waiting for this print tomorrow. I think it's going to be a print that's not going to be good and concern a lot of market participants that maybe the Fed is not done.
4: We only have about 45 seconds left. You were talking about Occidental Petroleum earlier. I'm curious when you're seeing this big rebound, especially today in energy stocks, up about 1.5% in the S&P 500, do you think we've gotten to a range where it's a contrarian indicator, especially with the amount of massive outflows we've seen in energy to where investors are gonna come back in and start buying those shares?
9: Yeah, remember, energy is one of the worst performing sectors year to date amongst healthcare and staples, right? So if we're starting to see a, an area where there's value relative to technology, consumer discretionary, which are sectors that have performed really well yet to date. If you're going to rebalance a portfolio, if there's concerns about inflation, no, then then maybe energy is a place where you want to be. And, and again, we'll see tomorrow with the print and, and how that trend's going forward. But I, I think that's what we're seeing with market participants.
1: Phil, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, always appreciate uh, getting a few minutes of your time. Phil Palumbo, he's the founder, he's CEO, and CIO I think he's pretty much in charge there. He's, he's the doing guy. it all. And he's got his name <laughs> on the door, Palumbo Wealth Management. So that says it all. Uh, still constructive on this market. Look, He's looking a little bit on the energy side, a little bit uh, on the consumer side yeah. with Nike.
0: From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate?
6: You're listening to The team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app,
2: or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Mark, we really appreciate you joining us. This is a, a very powerful vehicle with 450 miles range, but also a very high price tag. Who are you aiming this product at?
10: Well, I, if we look at the current Escalade, you know, we sold over a million units and we, we, you know, one out of every three of these uh, SUVs in this um, luxury segment is an Escalade. So we've got a very successful brand. Um, it's been, you know, an unbelievable vehicle for Cadillac and General Motors, but um, this is added to business. So we know there's people that um, are wanting an electric um, three-row SUV, full-size SUV. We're going to be the first ones that really bring it here uh, with an iconic brand. So we know this is uh, in addition to our internal combustion en- engine uh, and You can see it as the next step in the design language for Cadillac, both inside and out. And so this is going to be, you know, right on the, on the cutting edge of everything. It's it's the escalade uh
2: standard of the world it really is so you already have the hummer though which Mm is death Definitely on the cutting edge of everything, right? And early adopters who are waiting for a big electric vehicle, I'm assuming, went out and got that. Um, who's left to, to buy the Escalade? 130000 to start.
10: Yeah, I was going to say, well, the Ultium platform here that we're talking about is very flexible. And it's very different than the SUV offered from Hummer. And so you'll see it in the um, the proportions here uh, where we, we really are going after efficiency with 450 miles of range. That's a big deal um, for families and people who, who travel. Um, so it's a, it's a big range vehicle, but it's also 750 horsepower. Um, the the Hummers are in the thousand horsepower stand. You know, in that part of the part of the market there. So it's a little bit different uh, customer. It's very different from a duty cycle standpoint, but it's still built on the 24 mod pack that we use on our battery electric truck platforms.
2: There has been some criticism about these big uh, battery packs. Um, Bloomberg New Energy Finance, for example, wrote that um, you're using a lot of lithium that maybe should be left for the smaller electric vehicles. How do you respond to that?
10: Uh, Well, General Motors is going to make both, number one. So we're going to make everything from the Bolt with an LTM-based pack here as we bring it back online, um, to the Equinox, to the Blazer. So those are right in the biggest segments uh, in the world at price points that are um, you know, the most affordable, uh, right in the wheelhouse of, of those big volume segments. So we're gonna do that too, but um, you know, technology changes. And so anybody that thinks that we're going to have the same technology, even a year from now, chemistry-wise, uh, with um, our battery systems across the whole industry, um, isn't thinking about it quite right. Um, I think th- it's been mentioned before that uh, the telecommunications industry, there was all these people that were fearful of, of copper right Um, that all changed right and so you get into silicon you get into chips you get into all those things that are new technologies on a breaking transformation of the industry And i can tell you the history books will see this as just the first step
2: all right we're talking uh, again with mark royce president of general motors at the introduction of their brand new cadillac's brand new uh, ev escalade iq and you know I have driven the Escalade, uh, the V with also about 700 horsepower, right? It's got a big V8, eats up a lot of gas. That's the problem you're trying to solve with this. But there are still going to be people out there who want the V8. How long are you going to sell the internal combustion engine Escalade next to the Escalade IQ?
10: Well, you know, they're very different vehicles, again, um, in terms of the package. You know, we've got a huge amount of storage in this vehicle because of what we have up front, um, where the engine used to be, and then also um, a longer wheelbase. And the second row package is quite different too. So you add those things together, they're different vehicles, even though sort of the output on the power basis are similar. um, We're going to do both as long as people want both. And so, you know, if you look at this over the long-term horizon, the market and the customer, um, we haven't sold a vehicle like this ever. The market has never seen it vehicle like this. This is the first standard of the world, and so we're going to see what people do.
2: You are going to bring out the Silverado um, with, I believe, a similar battery pack and range, Mm -hmm. at least as an option. Um, Are you seeing price pressure? Because we're now seeing Ford capitulate and cut prices, Tesla obviously driving that. How do you expect the pricing to work out?
10: Well, the pricing, uh, we're starting with the Silverado with our work truck. So um, you know, our, our, our pricing and our ladders and our battery capacity and range capacity and duty cycle capacity on Silverado and Sierra are going to be for everybody's pocketbook and price point. So, you know, we know where uh, people want it from a work truck and our fleet standpoint. And then it'll it'll go all the way up through the RST, which will, you know, again, be a, a high-range high module, but you don't have to just do that. So we're going to offer those things as options. Cutting price, though, means that we didn't see it right. Um, And I don't think that's true. I think we're right in that wheelhouse of what people can afford and want. And so, you know, I I feel good about our pricing.
2: Are are these vehicles going to be profitable when you start selling them? Uh, Yes. And and are you going to be able to... Make uh, a million of them in 2025. Not not the Escalade IQ. <laughs> no, I just mean million electric million. vehicles. Yeah, electric, electric vehicles.
10: vehicles. Yeah, I think so. I think we're well on our track. You know, um, uh, we're well. We, we did 50,000 here uh, first half of the year. That was our, our our target, and we did that. Uh, you you got to bring cell plants along um, online as you do the assembly plans to make these. Um, our first plant in Lordstown, Ohio is now full capacity and running really well. Um, the second one will be in Spring Hill, Tennessee, um, right next to our Lyric um, uh, facility there. So that's coming online next. And the third one will be um, in Lansing, Michigan. And we're just, um, you know, doing the construction on that right now. So once we get past the first plant in Lordstown, Ohio, we learn how to make them. Um, we do it at, at volume. Um, we duplicate that uh, in, in Spring Hill and we duplicate that in Lansing. So the first ones out here, we knew we're going to be, um, you know, something that we'd never done before. And we tackled that and we're doing it with high quality and we're doing it rates. So um, those are, you know, that's how you get into volume production.
2: I got to ask about the negotiations with the UAW. Um, Are you prepared to make an expensive investment in raising those costs because their demands are, I think uh, they said, pretty audacious?
10: Yeah, I can't comment on um, what people say or or don't say about that. We are um, negotiating with our represented workforce uh, in earnest, as we always do. And we're we're there to make a, a good agreement, a fair agreement, an agreement that works for everybody. And that's all I have to say.
2: Mark, thanks very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Mark Thank you, Royce, Matt. always a pleasure. Thank president you. of General Motors, talking to us about Cadillac's new uh, Escalade IQ.
1: Let's continue a little car talk here. Yes. Uh, Too bad Matt's not here. Detroit Bureau Chief uh, for Bloomberg News. David Welch joins us. So, David, we just heard uh, Matt sitting down with uh, the GM president, Mark Royce, um, still sounding really confident in hitting some of their electric vehicle production goals, I think, a million for for next year. This is a major ramp up uh, that not just GM, but, you know, all of Detroit is making. What's the feeling about this industry and as it transitions to EV?
11: Yeah, well, I think a lot of people are skeptical, not just of GM, but just of late, we're seeing weakness in demand for EVs to a certain degree, and and, and that's reflected in pricing. In order to keep volumes, the Tesla's had to cut prices. Other companies like Ford have had to follow suit. Uh, even with price cuts, we've seen Tesla uh, volumes drop significantly in China. So everyone's wondering, well, if you know, so goes Tesla, so goes the rest of the industry. GM itself has had delays in and production of its Cadillac Lyric, one of its first EVs, the Hummer. Uh, they had to ground that for a while. They, they weren't selling them due to a recall. So can they really get to a million vehicles next year? Uh, and, and what Royce is saying, you got to listen to GM's words on this correctly. They're saying that they will have the production and they'll be able to produce a million okay. in 2025. They're not forecasting they're going to sell them. Uh, and, and they're not saying they won't either but I, I do think they're being that's a little bit careful yep. about saying they're, that they're gonna sell the cars. Having the capacity in place and the battery plants up and running is a big step, but if, if consumers don't want them at the prices you're gonna charge, that's where the risk is, and, and I think that's why investors are kinda of taking a wait and see on the other car companies that are uh, that are trying to get- And David, that, that's kinda where I them. wanted to go.
1: I guess my question is why is there not the demand in, in, in how much of it is because of the price? Because we're seeing price tags that no one has ever seen before for a truck, a sedan, and even an Escalade. Just huge increases.
11: That's right. You're, so you're, so like EVs are more expensive than gasoline-burning vehicles, and gasoline-burning vehicles are at all-time uh, highs in pricing right now. Even though they've come down a little bit, they're still really expensive. I think what's going on in the EV market is, and Mary Barra has said this, for the longest time, EVs have been a second, third, fourth car in some affluent family's garage. And it started to get beyond that as Tesla came out with Model 3 and Model Y, but even those were not super cheap vehicles. The Chevy Bold, Nissan Leaf do sell to people who, it, it's their only car, but most of the EVs out there and most of Tesla's production goes to people who have a lot of money. And I think you do get to a certain point where there are only so many 60, 80, $100,000 luxury EVs that the market can buy, and if you wanna get back get past that past the wealthy people past the early adopters you need cheap reviews you need more charging out on the highway uh, and that kind of thing and um, you know we're seeing all of the we're seeing everybody go to Tesla's charging standard that gives everybody more access to charging and then you saw seven car companies come together to put money you know pool their resources and and build out on the highways charging infrastructure so it takes away the fear that you'll be on a road trip and you'll get stranded in and GM and, and Others are coming out with cheap reviews, but it's going to be a few years. So I, I think we're sort of, like, technology always hits, I'm going to geek out on you, an S-curve. I think we're at the middle of the, we're, we're reaching the middle of that S, where sales level off until prices come down and everything becomes more accessible for everybody.
4: Mark Royce also did shrug off concerns as far as when it comes to why a copper shortage would threaten EVs, Mm. as well as green transition. But innovation in EVs has been seen as denting copper demand's growth potential. How do you view this, and how potentially big of an issue when it comes to copper do you think this could be for EV makers?
11: Yeah, One of the challenges for everybody going forth with EVs is you're in the commodities market. You know, you're, you're looking for lithium, you're looking for cobalt, you're looking for copper, and you are subject to the price fluctuations and everyone's gonna be competing for availability. Uh, GM is one of the companies that's done a pretty good job of forming joint ventures, buying stakes in mines, and, and securing access to these minerals uh, that, that'll basically give them enough materials to make the batteries, to make the EVs going out, I think through 2026 and in some cases beyond. Mark's answer was interesting. He said anyone who thinks we're going to be using the same technology and the same battery chemistry in in the next couple of years is looking at this the wrong way. So I think there're a couple of, you know, GM and others, Ford has moved to do this too and certainly Tesla has. They've they they've got deals out there to secure production of some of these key minerals, but I think they're also looking at all kinds of chemistries where they can reduce the requirements for either expensive or tough to get materials. And and but they're they're going to be, you know, they're going to be in this game of kind of racing through either innovation or mining deals to make sure they're getting the right stuff at a decent price.
1: So is there a sense within D.C. Um, about how this industry is going to you know, kind of evolve from internal combustion to electric? Is it because uh, Mark said also that, hey, we're going to continue to make internal combustion engines as long as people want them as well. Is this something that can coexist or is it a, a definite phase in, phase out process?
11: it is and i think look there are going to be people who just don't want to make the transition to evs in the next five years um you know what i i think one of the challenges everyone talks about charging okay there aren't enough charges in the highway some people will resist that people talk about the price people don't want to pay that much totally true and you have to remember that uh you know what three quarters of the u.s vehicle market is used vehicles those people absolutely don't have the money to pay for a sixty or eighty thousand dollar EV, so the prices have to come down. But there's another thing here: people are kind of happy with their gasoline burning vehicles, and you really have to find a way to dislodge them from that. Whether it's just getting them to try an EV, and okay, I've, I've driven some of them on the market. It really is a better experience. I love driving them, uh, but you, you still have to pull people out of something that right now they're pretty happy with, and and that's a marketing and market challenge. So uh, you know, I. And, and it's not going to be that easy for a lot of these buyers. EVs have captured the imagination, and a lot of people are shopping them. But you know, getting the 50% of the market, which is what uh, some of the, the, the or more, which is what some of the requirements in Washington uh, are calling for by 2032, uh, I, I think it's going to be tough, given where the consumer mindset is right now.
4: And to follow up on that, when Matt Miller asked Mark Royce about whether these vehicles would be profitable when they start selling them, when they were talking about the Cadillac Escalade IQ specifically, which does has that $130,000 price tag. Not surprisingly, he did immediately say yes. And you were just talking about these profitability challenges. What EV makers in this space do you think are maybe better equipped when it comes to sort of these marketing campaigns that you were just talking about versus others that you think might struggle with this?
11: I mean, look at tesla obviously because they've already got a great brand and they're already they're already profitable here in fact they, they spend very little on marketing because the brand is so great um look I, I think all the major car car companies have just big marketing budgets and they can really push this uh you know the the, the question is for them can they make money on these vehicles and that was an interesting answer from royce I, I think part of the reason he's saying the escalator will be profitable out of the gate is it, starts at one hundred and thirty thousand and it it'll probably go up to one hundred and fifty thousand per vehicle you can hide a lot of battery cost in a sticker price that big <laughs> uh but look one thing gm has and the reason that they aren't selling as many of their newest dvs as ford is ford basically took platforms of, of of an f-150 pickup and their mid-size you know crossover suv segment and they converted them heavily modified them to make the Mach-E and uh, the F-150 Lightning. GM took a step back. They said, look, we don't need to be here now because EV volumes aren't that big. And they made a dedicated EV platform. And the whole idea there was you're basically using the same battery, same platform for the future Chevy Bolt, small vehicle, on up to the giant Escalade, giant Hummer. And they get economies of scale that way. So it's taking them longer to get there. But the plan is that you, you, you do get to scale the volume of all your EVs over right. 7, 8, 10, 12 nameplates over the next couple of years, and they're saying that they will be profitable by 2025. Now, right. the catch there is, again, they can build a million vehicles. If they sell them all, they probably will be profitable. What I'd like to know is how many of that $1 million worth of production capacity <laughs> they need to sell to be a break-even. Yeah. Uh, one forecaster told me they see GM selling about 350000 in 2025. Would they be profitable there? I don't know. I think it's tough at that point if you're tooling up for a million vehicles and you sell a third of that. Uh, but that forecaster could be wrong, you know. So sales volume matters, and whether or not they can get consumers to bite on all of this volume, uh, that's what's going to determine their profitability on on the programs.
1: All right. Well, in the meantime, Matt Miller can go test drive a whole new, you know, (laughs) series of electric vehicles in addition to the internal combustion, so he'll be happy. Uh, And I'm sure, David, you do get your fair share of uh, test drives as well, so uh, good luck with that. David Welch, Detroit Bureau Chief for Bloomberg News. Uh, and uh, before that uh, just commenting on the uh, you know the car business and again before that General Motors President Mark Royce with uh, Matt Miller and and like all the other um, most of the other uh, major automakers around the world all in on electric vehicles I guess, I guess you have to be.
4: You almost have to be.
1: You're listening
6: to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa,
1: play Bloomberg 1130. So to get a little bit better understanding of the gaming business, we turn to Anne Hand. She's the CEO and chairwoman of Super League Gaming. This is a NASDAQ. Uh, listed stock. SLGG uh, is the uh, ticker. Hey, and again, one of the big news items on the tape today is the Roblox earnings. I'm sure you've had a chance to take a look. What did you take away from that? And, and are you seeing any of those issues at your company?
12: Um, actually, it's it's really the inverse. And I think a lot of this is just because um, investors, this is a new category for them to really understand. You guys, um, I heard your intro and you're talking about the fact that about gaming and it being hits-driven. You know, game platforms like Roblox are very different than the traditional video games we know and love. So first of all, you guys nailed it. Uh, Gaming is at the center of entertainment. It was bigger than the film box office and TV even prior to COVID. But what makes um, platforms like Roblox different is you don't play Roblox. You play thousands of games inside of Roblox. And what they've done effectively is they've put the tools in the hands to everyday gamers to make develop their own game worlds. And so what's powerful about that is is that now you've enlisted, you've democratized and enlisted, you know millions of people around the world to make those hits for you and for each other and to enjoy gameplay. And so when I look at you know the fact that roblox is is reaching over sixty five million daily active users, you know, generating, you know, billions and billions of hours of gameplay um, each quarter. It's really significant, the amount of engagement. I often say to investors, don't even think of it as gaming. What's so powerful about Roblox is most of the people are there to either create or just to socialize like a digital cul-de-sac. So think of it as more um, the next generation of social media. That's just Mm. highly, much more highly um, customizable, personalized, social, interactive. And why that's powerful is it changes the landscape of how you can bring advertisers and brands into the game. So I think that for Roblox, um, investors should hang in there because what they're gonna see is, is that the potential for the advertising model to really take off, it's in its nascent days, um, the best is yet to come.
4: You did bring up daily active users, so that did fall about 1% last quarter to around $65 up, though, 25% from a year earlier. So still, when you're looking at daily active user count and hours play, that did fall short of Wall Street analyst expectations. But I wanted to gauge your thoughts on this because Roblox typically doesn't provide financial projections. How much of that goes into the sell-off that we're seeing in the stock today when investors have a hard time kind of gauging potentially where the company sees things headed?
12: Yeah, I mean, I do think there's an opportunity for them to paint maybe a more specific narrative around the ad model because it's it's significant when you're reaching that type of scale. Um, the other important thing to note about Roblox is their audience is aging up in a good way um, because a lot of those um, under 13 players have now grown into 16, 17, um, over 18-year-olds, and that really opens up the net even wider for the advertising opportunity keep in mind the primary monetization model has always for them been consumer monetization and so for them to now add this additional revenue stream for which super league is one of their strategic partners in selling off think about all those eyeballs they're reaching and all the opportunity i mean this is like rocket fuel for roblox Um, you know, in enlisting a partner like us to do that selling and that monetization for them. But imagine what it does for a small cap company like Super League to have Roblox and that engine and power and reach behind it to kind of help us um, really accelerate our revenue growth too. So I, again, do believe that while the the daily active users felt a little bit flat, the mix is powerful. The portfolio is powerful and it's still a crazy amount of reach. And can you
1: define for us uh, what metaverse gaming is and and how big is it and how fast is it growing?
12: Yeah, it's it's such an important point because, again, it's so different than the games that I played growing up. I mean, first of all, we've already seen it that gaming isn't something anymore you grow out of. Um, It's more of a lifestyle. And that's, again, because these game platforms have changed things. You know, traditional games that people like Activision and Take-Two make, those are games where they serve a a map or a game up to you. And you just play the game and, you know, there's different strategies, but it's not something that you can modify and adapt. What's so different about Minecraft, Roblox, and now Fortnite, made by Epic Games, is that what they're really doing is handing out the tools to empower other people to make experiences. And when I say experiences, it's not... um, most of the times, it's not about points and winners and losers. It's experiences like a pop-up concert, or maybe you can tour through a museum. Um, today, uh, the AP just put out a story about how Super League is um, has been enlisted to recreate Hamilton inside of Roblox. So you can right. now go and you can experience Hamilton and you can learn about American history in a very gamified way. And so the important thing, again, just to denote is, is that 2D and 3D metaverse worlds or these these game platforms are much more, as I said earlier, like um, an extension of someone's physical social life. And it, everything that you can do in the real world, you can have a digital twin of. And so, um, I really think metaverse games, people need to think super broadly because. Again, it's not just about competition and winning and losing, it's much more about taking your physical life and having an expression of itself digitally.
4: We only have about about 40 seconds left, but how can advertisers use the metaverse as an additional marketing channel to make money?
12: Yeah, so that's what's so important. When you look at what we did when we recreated Barbie's Dream House in October last year, we drove 60 million visits to Barbie's Dream House. That's powerful engagement. Um, And the average dwell time was about seven to eight minutes. Similarly with Chipotle, we drove one of their highest digital food sales days and their highest digital app sale day by allowing first people to experience a pop-up Chipotle in an an immersive world, and then that converted them into digital app downloads and food sales. We gave out 130,000 free burritos in real life in 30 minutes. So this is the new way for brands to find this next generation They meet brands for the first time, uh, 47% uh, through digital screens. So that's where they need
1: to be. Powerful stuff. I really appreciate getting some of your time. And that's Anne Hand, CEO and Chairwoman of Super League Gaming, talking about the metaverse of gaming. I mean, it's getting more and more immersive. Interesting stuff.
2: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller.
1: I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.